days. So, two weeks ago was the umpteenth time. Last week was umpteenth plus one. So today, the final sermon in this series is umpteenth plus two. For the umpteenth plus two time, remember that Jesus Christ himself said, and it's recorded in inspired scripture in the New Testament, that no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus said, I don't even know. Only the Father knows. So, please don't spend your time like coming up with some theory on knowing exactly what day it's going to happen and what time. Um, you know, I personally believe, because Jesus said nobody knows, that that's a waste of time. Here's what I hope for you, is that you live your life by faith in Jesus Christ, following Him, filled with the Holy Spirit, obedient to His Holy Word. And so whenever He comes, whether it's in the middle of this sermon or whether it's in the middle of the next millennium, we'll be ready because we lived our life by faith in Jesus Christ. We were faithful, honored Him, obeyed Him, and shared our faith. And by grace through faith, we'll be okay. And by the manner in which we live as a Spirit-filled follower of Jesus, other people will be okay too because we because we lived and were a part of their life, they came to faith in Christ. So concentrate on that. But living in the last, having said that, living in the last days, there are some things that we can know, and there is some behavior that that will um, either change or intensify before the last, you know, in the end times, shortly before Jesus comes. And we can know some details about that because they're shared with us in Scripture. And some of those are shared in Second Timothy. This sermon series has been a traveling through Second Timothy. We haven't covered every word of every verse, but we've covered um, some important passages in Timothy. Today, we're going to be in Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through five. So if you want to turn there in your Bible and get ready to read that together, we're going to do that here in a little bit. Have you ever known exactly? Um, have you ever not known? exactly what you should do next um, that's a rhetorical question with me assuming that everybody's going to say yeah I've experienced a time when I know exactly what to, to do next and if and if anybody you know says no that's never happened to me then I'm going to suggest that you're not as self-aware as you could be um, you want to know and do the will of God but you weren't sure how to figure that out well I want to tell you about a story of my life. It was 1974. Lucy and I were living in Sunnymead, California, outside of March Air Force Base. Oh, did I say 74? Wow. Yeah, it was 1984. I looked right at 1984 here in the notes. Um, it was 1984. I will not make my wife any older than she is, especially not by a decade. Although there was a time when my son and I, for 18 months, had her convinced that she was a year older than she actually was. It lasted 18 months before. <laughs> so anyway, um, that, that's how love is expressed at the staff household when nobody else is there. It was 1984. Lucy and I were living in Sunnymead, California, outside of March Air Force Base. Lucy worked in a preschool during the day. And, and I was serving in the U.S. Air Force, and I was, at the time, was working swing shift, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. I had been recently saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and I've always loved to read. 
And so I quickly developed a love for reading God's Word, the Bible. And so, you know, I'd get home, Lucy would head out shortly after that, and I'd spend some time, I'd pray and read the Bible every morning. And it was just an amazing season in my life as a new follower of Jesus Christ. And one morning as I prayed, I sensed Holy Spirit tell me that today, God is going to show you in His Word my call on your life, what you're supposed to do with your life. And like clear impressions like that don't happen every day necessarily. And when you're a young Christian and something that strong um, impacts you and that important, I really perked up on that. And so I I didn't do what I normally do. I thought, well, man, there's got to be some special passage. And so I opened my Bible and put my finger down, you know, and it was like Second Hezekiah, you know. That's not really a book in the Bible. I know that. But, you know, it was like Jehoshaphat beget Shimalamama, who beget some other name nobody can pronounce. You know, I mean, like really not sensing a calling in that. And and so, you know, I went you know, like went more towards the back and some other, you know, New Testament passages. I did it like four times and nothing. And so, um, isn't that cute? You know, I mean, it's so it seems so silly later, but that that's what I did. And so then having, you know, tried multiple attempts at you know, not finding anything I went to where I had left off the day before, went to the next verse and began reading there. And I had been reading through Second Timothy, and the day before I had finished the third chapter. And so today's passage, this is what I read that day. And so um, this has a special place in my heart because of how powerfully God spoke to me. Second Timothy chapter 4, let's read together verses 1 through 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Man, what a powerful passage. These were originally in a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a protege of him. Paul had mentored him for years. Paul's now under uh, you know, house arrest. He's in prison in Rome. Very, he knows very likely that he's going to be executed. And history tells us that, in fact, he was executed. And this, we believe, is the last letter he wrote. And he writes it to the younger man, that he had been pastoring. He wasn't his biological father, but Paul had fathered Timothy in the faith. I did not plan this out to preach this passage on Father's Day, um, but again, I'm continually amazed at how God sees ahead and brings everything together um, like this. So, the word of the Lord from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 
I drive a 2014 Honda CRV. It's parked out front. I normally park on the side of the church today, but I just pulled up right up front and I was already out of the car before I realized I didn't park where I normally do to leave the front open. So I left it there. But I drive a 2014 Honda CRV. We bought it used when it was one year old. And it's rated for up to 23 miles per gallon in town and up to 31 miles per gallon on the highway. And I want to stop here and, and take a rabbit trail for a minute. We bought that car um, at a year old with 18,000 miles on it, thousands of dollars less than what you would have paid a year ago brand new. Um, who, who buys a car that, that's going to last that long and then gets rid of it in a year? And so I thought that through for like days and finally decided that something bad must have happened in somebody's life. And so I never knew who owned it before me. I knew it wasn't wrecked. I knew it didn't have any big mechanical problem in the year before I owned it. But somebody got rid of it in a year that bought it brand new. And so I decided that that probably something bad happened in somebody's life. You know, they passed away. They got sick. You know, who knows? But I, I prayed for them for a while after that, not knowing who they were because it just boggled my mind that you'd buy a car that's going to last, you know, 20 years or something and get rid of it in a year after you bought it brand new. So anyway, I looked up the stats on my Honda and it's rated for up to 23 miles per gallon in town and up to 31 miles per gallon on the highway. And it achieves that. Um, in, In fact, it exceeds that usually. At first... I would watch the gas gauge closely because, you know, I mean, this is good gas mileage, better gas mileage than the vehicle I had before that, you know. So watching the gas gauge, and um, it, it, uh, it's a digital gauge, and it's got two displays that you can display information about what kind of uh, gas mileage you're getting. It's got that traditional one with the arc and the, and the F up top for full and the mark at three-quarter, half, and a quarter tank, and then a mark down bottom with the E for empty. And then it's got another digital setting um, that one of the settings that you can choose is how many miles are left until empty. And so, you know, it'll just, you know, you can look over here and see you're at, you know, above three quarters of a tank and look over here and see that you have, you know, 320 miles left on your tank. And um, I noticed that the, the wand wouldn't move off a of full for a while. You'd fill the tank up and the wand would be parked there on full for a while. And when it got close to empty, the same thing would happen. It'd get down close to empty, and then it would just seem to stay there just above empty um, for a while. And, and one time even, um, after I got my shoulder replaced, I had to go back for my first appointment, and I couldn't drive to Boise and back, and so... Somebody drove me up there, and on the way home, I told them, we're going to need gas on the way home, and I'm probably going to fall asleep because I'm exhausted. And so watch that gauge, and, and we might need to stop in Mountain Home to get gas. And so I fell asleep. He forgot to watch the gauge. And when, I, when, I, um, when, he, when he parked at my house, um, I got in the car the next day to drive here locally, and there were six miles left on the tank. And, and the wand was below the E-line. You could, see, you could see space between the top of the wand and the bottom of the E-line. So, and, it, you know, that's cutting it pretty close. So, um, 
it seemed like the car had more miles left than what you would expect, right? The, the wand's at the empty line, but, but you still have, you know, however many miles left. So later, I read an article online that automotive engineers calibrate gas gauges to do that. To like hover up there at full for a while and then to still have more left than they're letting on when it gets to empty. And why is that? Because customer surveys told them that's the way we want them to work. The engineer who wrote the article at the time worked at Ford Motor Company in the area of systems engineering and core fuel systems. These two statements from the article stood out to me. Um, The first one is, our customers really don't want to run out of fuel when they hit E. (laughs) And the other statement is, we prefer the illusion to the reality. In other words, we want to feel like we're getting better fuel mileage even if we're not. That's why it hovers up there for a while before it starts coming off a full. Um, The article concluded with the engineer saying this, customers are such a fickle bunch. An engineer's job is to make things accurate and efficient. But when it comes to gas mileage, engineers are played to play psychologists too. To keep the customers happy. What could be more straightforward than a gas gauge? But we want it to appear different than it actually is. We'd rather have our preconceived notions than we would reality. I think there's a lesson here for church pastors who feel the pressure to accommodate an increasingly fickle clientele. And having made that statement, I know on Sunday morning, for those of you here in the sanctuary, I'm preaching to the choir. Okay, I'm preaching to those who are faithful to come and attend and give and support the ministry and participate in the ministry. But in general, in our nation, in our generations, there's a lesson for church pastors who feel the pressure to accommodate an increasingly fickle clientele. In the age of political correctness, it's a real challenge to preach the absolute truth of God. And far too many pastors are accommodating their congregations. In plain words, We've re-engineered the gospel with no trials to endure, no sufferings of Christ to share, no call to humility or sacrifice to embrace, and certainly no coming judgment. But Paul reminded Timothy, and Holy Scripture reminds us, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. When Jesus returns, I think some pastors will be surprised. Um, Some pastors have quit preaching the Gospels. Some don't believe what they're preaching themselves. Others have substituted preaching for discussion where every opinion is affirmed, whether it has any basis in the biblical text or not. We're concluding our series, as I said, from Second Timothy today. Paul wrote to Timothy before his execution to say, in the last days, perilous times will come. Our times are perilous uh, for one reason, because churches don't expect much, and pastors are all too eager to oblige. Paul reminded his first century audience in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It's foolishness to the world. 
Um, but when you believe by faith in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you discover truth. And then Paul adds in another letter in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great promise. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And I think when it says preaching to them there, it's not just this part of a Sunday morning service. I think it's also our witness to them verbally and in our actions and our attitudes and choices out when we're out in the world. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? The profession of preaching is not exactly popular. Uh, Founding father John Adams, his father, hoped that his son would become a pastor. And he was disappointed when he studied law. But today, a recent survey indicated that ministry ranks just above politician. Um, Which, if you didn't know, doesn't rank high. That, my friends, is sad. God, however, still values this spoken word. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church and God formed the church, God spoke through Peter that day. On the road to Gaza, God spoke through Philip. In Damascus, God spoke through Ananias. And the people of Macedonia pleaded with Paul to come and preach to them. And Paul concludes his last letter to Timothy by saying, Don't scratch itchy ears. Don't be a people pleaser. Don't re-engineer the message to make people feel good. Preach the truth. Today, I want to point out five responsibilities that Paul gave Timothy. The first one is preach to please God, not men. We live in a consumer-driven society. Each one of us, we have our likes and dislikes. We're all price conscious. We pride ourselves on finding the best for the least. Bargains for the best prices. But the gospel is not a commodity to sell. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Pastors are tempted in a variety of ways. It's not always illicit sex or money under the table. Sometimes it's as innocent as the need to be liked and the compromises that are made to keep somebody happy. Or it's the fear of opposition that keeps us from speaking the truth. Most pastors know what their audience wants to hear. You want to hear about everybody else's sin. And again, I'm preaching to the choir. I don't think this applies to those of us in this room. Um, And I wouldn't say that if I didn't believe it to be true. But in general in the church, you want to hear about somebody else's sins. That your sins aren't as bad as your neighbor's. That everybody is going to heaven and hell is not a literal place of punishment. The average church wants to hear a message that boosts self-esteem. That if you serve the Lord, He'll make you rich. That you'll never get sick or suffer. And that your children will always be healthy. That's why some are tempted to water down the truth. But Paul says that's a myth. It's not the truth. You might secure a large following, but a large audience is not proof that the truth is being preached. Um, There's a church that was a multi-site ministry. 
with 15 church campuses in five states. They averaged over 12,000 in attendance every weekend. 260,000 people listened to their podcast. And they have started over 500 churches all across the United States. Those numbers are impressive. But everything that glitters isn't gold. Their senior pastor took a six-week leave of absence before admitting to unethical bookkeeping. And I'm not going to say his name because if I did, you'd know who it was. Um, He regularly used profanity from the pulpit, in print, and on radio. And then he fired 20 staff members without cause. In an effort to silence his critics, he was interviewed by a woman named Janet Mefford, M-E-F-F-E-R-D. She discovered that he plagiarized 14 pages of his book. When she confronted him in that interview, he let loose with a verbal tirade that would have shamed a sailor. And I'm from Arizona, which is not a a place where a large population of sailors live. I don't know why that old saying, you know, cuss like a sailor. Um, So no disrespect to sailors, but... He let loose with a verbal tirade that would shame a sailor. The elders of that church placed their pastor on a six-week leave of absence while they investigated all the charges and interviewed all past staff members. Eventually, they released their pastor. Three churches were closed down. Attendance has plummeted, and 40% of the church staff was laid off because of dwindling financial support. And and this goes back several years now um, when those... Figures were gathered. For 18 years, that pastor entertained the troops, as it were, because they overlooked what they thought were minor faults. The church was expanding, books were selling, buildings were being erected, but the house is now falling because it was built on sand. We preach the gospel to please God, not men. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul begins 2 Timothy chapter 4 with the first verse, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. Have you ever stood before a judge in a court of law? It'll stop your heart. It's a singular moment. A judge can incarcerate or vindicate or liberate. I've seen grown men tremble and more than a few weep. One of these days, I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ Himself. I will have to give an answer, an accounting for my preaching. If I preached to please you, I'm in serious trouble. So I don't preach to scratch what your itchy ears want to hear. I preach to please God, not man. I said that once when I was being interviewed uh, as a potential pastor for a church, and I did end up becoming pastor of that church. And one of the things I said, and I've said it every time I've preached um, or interviewed for a church, is, is I promise never to preach to make you happy. And that, I don't think, is antagonistic. But there was a person at that church that never let go of that. Um, Never let go of that. That I would not preach 
to make her happy. Wow. I preach to please God, not man. The second thing I want to point out today is preach the word, not human opinion. There's an interesting prophecy in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. The days are coming, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. I think that famine exists today. Many preachers have been educated in liberal colleges and seminaries. They were taught and they believe that the Bible is full of myths. And it is, it is a source of some truth, but not the truth. Since the Bible, they believe, is unreliable, they preach psychology or multiculturalism or some thought that is the fad of the day in the culture outside the church. There's no systematic study of the Bible. They use cultural commentators or some other writings as another source of authority. I had a Bible professor in college that had once been called to pastor a church in New England before he became a a professor. When he stepped into the pulpit on his first Sunday in that church, it was the first time in 12 years years that the Bible had been read or quoted during a Sunday morning sermon. That boggles my mind. Um, Jeremiah chapter 37 verse 2, the people of the land paid the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken. Now, I copied and pasted that out of an online Bible, and that statement makes no sense to me. Can you look up Jeremiah 37 too? Oh, nor the people of the land, neither he nor his attendants, nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Glad somebody can copy and paste. And the background of that verse, Zedekiah had asked, Jeremiah to pray for him. Zedekiah was a king at the time. He'd asked the prophet Jeremiah to pray for him. To make a long story short, um, Jeremiah didn't say things that blessed Zedekiah's heart and complimented him. And so Jeremiah was arrested. He's placed in the king's dungeon and forgotten for a while. Finally, Zedekiah called for God's prophet and asked, is there any word from the Lord? And then he gets in trouble. (laughs) Um, We're living in perilous times. And people still want to know. Some of us still want to know, is there any word from the Lord? Does God care about me and my problems? With billions of people occupying this planet, does He, God, have something to say to me? Our task as God's people is to preach the Word, to let them know yes, and tell them what it is. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's good news. There is one who satisfies. There is one who blesses forever. The third point is preach God's message, not an extreme view. When I was a kid, I didn't attend church regularly. When I went to church, it was with a friend and his family. I thought preaching used to be nothing more than yelling. 
the preacher would shout and wave his arms and stomp his feet. Not being there every Sunday, I didn't know what to make of that. Sometimes mom and dad would ask me later, what was the sermon about? And I could never remember, but I just knew he was mad about something. I didn't know a thing about preaching, but I knew that I, I was never going to be that yeller like that man was. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Preach the word, be prepared, in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. I'm um, not all that sure that today's average preacher is very careful with the instruction. Sometimes correction is needed. Sometimes we need to be convicted and we need rebuking. But the preacher must always be patient and give attention to careful instruction. Why? James tells us in the book of James, chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That's why Paul tried to reason with his audience. In the book of Acts, chapters 17 and 18, there are four references to reasoning. Um, One example is Acts chapter 18, verse 4. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Sometimes the best rebuke is a quiet response. Peter denied Jesus three times. Remember what happened at the third denial? Gospel of Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62. The Lord turned and look straight at Peter. He didn't say a word the third time. Just turned and looked at him. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Um, I think that's a rebuke by Jesus. And he didn't utter a word. Not loudly, not quietly, not a single word. He turned and looked at Peter. And Peter got it. The word, the world, excuse me, the world beats us down Monday through Saturday. So there needs to be more than correction and chastisement here on Sunday. There is a saying, good preaching afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. And it should do both of those things. The fourth point, preach patiently not impulsively. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy to preach with great patience. The word in the original language means far-feeling. Our English word is um, lenient with that understanding. Preaching requires patience because it seldom gets an immediate response. It takes time. It takes multiple exposure to the same idea, to the same word. Um, Paul says, in the last days, people will not put up with sound doctrine. They'll look for someone to scratch their ears. So, as you preach, be patient. Noah preached for 120 years without a convert. He told them for 120 years. God, that's a long time. 
Um, what a testament to, to the power of perseverance by faith in the Word of the Lord. Without a convert. Don't become agitated or annoyed or get angry. Our responsibility is to sow the seed, but God has promised He will bring the harvest. Paul adds in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of the ministry. And the fifth point, preach every Sunday, ready or not. Have you ever said, I wish I had one more day? Um, you'll never know how many weeks I have wished for just one more day. But Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, when you think you're ready and when you think you're not, or when you're glad you could or you wish you could get a break. In the New English Bible, that same verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, says, press it home on all occasions, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. I almost always look forward to Sunday, man. I get up on Sunday morning and I'm a little more excited for the day than the other days of the week. In many ways, it's the easiest morning to get out of bed. But on Saturday night, I frequently think to myself, I need one more day. Now, God is perfect, but the classic rock group, the Beatles, are very close to being right. We need eight days a week. Right? In Acts 21, Paul went into the temple to purify himself, and the Jews were just incensed because they believed a rumor that was untrue. And oh, the damage we can do to our preachers by believing rumors that are not true without ever checking it out, but just believing because I've known so and so for 25 years, so it must be true. Um, they believed a rumor, and they were incensed. Because they thought Paul had taken Gentiles into the temple, into an area that contradicted the law. So they began to beat him to death, to beat Paul to death. Um, as a result, the Romans arrested Paul. They saved his life by arresting him that day. And guess what he did? He said, can I preach to these people? Can I preach to the people? Acts 22 is Paul's sermon to this angry mob. The first 21 verses of that chapter is Paul's sermon. And verse 22 is the crowd's response. So Paul preaches to the crowd that just tried to beat him to death. And then their response to his preaching is, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. I'm not the Apostle Paul. So all I ask is this. When you've heard enough, when you're ready to listen to somebody else, let me know and I'll leave quickly and quietly and there's no beating that's necessary. Okay? Nothing intimidated Paul enough to make him quit. Nothing intimidated Paul enough to make him quit. I mean, after a day like that, the thought might cross your mind. But nothing intimidated Paul enough to make him quit. He was ready to preach in season and out of season. That doesn't give you permission or me permission to be rude or ill-mannered. But if presented with the opportunity, you say a good word about the Lord. That's what 
professional golfer Paul Azinger did. I don't follow professional golf, and I don't really know. You know, I can think of like two of the names from back in the day when my dad golfed and watched golf on TV every weekend. Um, And then, you know, maybe one more recent name, but that's what saying a good word about the Lord given the opportunity is what Paul Azinger did. Between 1988 and 1984, he was ranked in the top 10 in professional golf. So, a world-class golfer. He was an 11-time PGA winner, and he won the PGA Championship in 1993. But in 1994, Azinger was diagnosed with cancer. And Azinger and his wife are both born-again Christians. And he said later, his first thought was, I'm going to die from cancer. And his second thought was, I'm going to die anyway. It's just a question of when. Azinger's cancer went into remission, and he retired from the tour to enjoy his two children. Four years after he retired, Payne Stewart, another professional golfer, died in a plane crash, and Stewart's wife asked Paul Azinger to eulogize her husband. And Azinger took the opportunity to say some things to his fellow golfers that he'd always wanted to say. And Here's my favorite line from his speaking at that funeral. We're not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying trying to get to the land of the living. That'll only happen if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. What a word. Um, Profound enough to carry all the truth you need to know to get saved and simple enough to know that the point is Jesus Christ. Um, What a great job of preaching the Word in season and out of season. That'll only happen if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. So, my dear brothers and sisters, trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and go and say a good word about the Lord. We're going to sing one final song. It's in the hymnal. It's got a number that I don't remember. Um... I have decided to follow Jesus and let that be um, our response to the word of the Lord in, in Paul's second letter to Timothy. I have decided to follow Jesus. It's a 468.